So this is follow-up to the follow-up. Observing like this recent post-George Floyd cycle of struggles, I guess an interesting end cap to it is the end of Chaz slash Chop, which was recently dismantled by the police. Honestly, it seems like after the energies of it kind of sputtered out and petered out mostly on their own. And also following a series of shootings taking place in the area. This seems kind of typical. It seems like this is how these things work. There's this kind of explosion of energy, and then it kind of dissipates. And it either coalesces around something concrete over a long period of time, or it doesn't. I know one thing that's happened over the course of this is that the organization Black Lives Matter raised a shit ton of money, both from you know sort of well-meaning donors and from private companies. So we'll see how that affects that as an institution. But from what I can tell, the current wave has died down. Now we're back on that Rona wave. Yeah, riding that second wave. Yeah, I suspect if all of these evictions go through, if there isn't another stimulus, that you're basically just drying out the fields even further and creating another tinderbox, another sort of powder keg for potential unrest. And what that looks like after following that is anybody's guess. Uh, I suspect it's either maybe it, it integrates into the kind of normalized form of protest that we've seen, or it's even more explosive than what came previously. Right. We also, we should probably mention we have C on as a guest. Hello, C. Hello. C is a uh, Seattle George Floyd solidarity protest participant mm-hmm. and peripheral sort of chop Chaz observant. Yes. I spent some time at Chop and Chaz. Yes. We're basically discussing this, and C can probably provide some on the ground insight yes, that color commentary. We, yeah, color commentary that we can't from uh, our armchairs. Uh, thousands of miles yeah. away. We did have a little write-up by um, Swampside listener Bo uh, that I wanted to read out just as a tone setter. There's so many forces at play. There's been a lot of attention on the violence, but the truth of the matter is there's been gun violence within the Black and poor communities of Seattle every day in a good year. So the only thing different now is the city weaponizing the narrative and ignoring the conditions that capitalists have created here. I was a supporter externally, kicking the cop union out of the county labor council and marches on the mayor, for example. And this was only at the chop after work for a few hours. So I didn't organize the working tents and facilitate assemblies, but my comrades did. The best way I could describe everything in Seattle is like, there's a blitz every day. The chop got into national news, but what doesn't get reported in national news is that since the first week of June, there's been daily marches of several hundred to several thousand sometimes three separate marches around the city at the same time. There's been an ongoing occupation at the African-American Museum. The Labor Council kicked out the cop union. We finally passed an Amazon tax. City Council passed a veto-proof recall on the mayor, backed by 56,000 signatures. And they also passed a resolution to defund the Seattle Police Department by 50%. And 19 straight days of sections of the I-5 closed until a reactionary murdered our comrade Summer and nearly murdered comrade Diaz. There's been actions all weekend, so I don't want y'all to feel like you're getting blown off. It's just that shit is going down in Seattle in real time across a broad spectrum of the city, and every activist and organizer I know is close to burnout from just daily Zoom meetings alone. Damn. So what do you think, C? Is that accurate? Definitely accurate. Jibes well with my experience over the last, gosh, what now, month and a week or something? Because I, th- I mean, the, the first major protest in Seattle, I guess it was technically there was one on May 29th, but I think May 30th was the one 
at Westlake during the day that that all the cop cars got burned at and everything. You've been out there since the 29th or you had uh, been the, for like a since, straight month, basically, or yeah, something like that. I, I didn't go to the stuff in the evening on the 29th, but I, I've been at it since the 30th. Not always daily, but definitely weekly. And that week at the beginning of June, I was out probably 10 days straight, mostly at what became Chaz. It wasn't Chaz at the time. It was still the protest in front of the precinct. But yeah, so I spent a lot of time out at that. And then um, as Chaz slash Chop, um, I still call it Chaz, but uh, I think both names are probably suitable and a lot of people have different opinions about which one they like more. So it's not Um, like a dead name or something? I don't believe (laughs) so. My perspective on it, which may be incorrect, but Chop seems like a name that got kind of imposed on it by some of the more uh, liberal factions. I just like Chaz better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fact that they couldn't decide on a name is probably a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect. Yeah. That's probably the first red flag and not, you yeah. know, stalling grad kind. At some level, Chop is probably more accurate to what it actually was. Oh, definitely. It was, prob- was probably more realistic to what they could accomplish, but... No, I, I completely agree with that. And I mean, it was an autonomous zone in that it was a place where the cops did not openly go. I mean, I'm sure there were there were undercover cops there all the time. Uh, right, right. Feds and whatever. But, you know, uniformed officers for the vast majority of the time did not go there. So it was autonomous in that sense, but it wasn't it wasn't like literally Rojava or something like it was. And <laughs> right. no one thought it was no one. I mean, maybe right. a few people on Twitter did. But like, right. that's, yeah. not, that's not that wasn't the project. You used a phrase that I think is really interesting. What would become Chaz? I think mm-hmm. on the Discord a little bit, you had mentioned that there was something of a debate when the police pulled out what to do with the precinct and that you're basically on the losing side of that debate, if you don't mind me saying so. No. Um, and that it was a, a struggle over tactics, basically. Keeping in mind that the context of this is a over week long sustained protest. The line was held between a block and half a block away from this police precinct in the middle of Capitol Hill, which is a wealthy, artsy nightlife district um, near downtown Seattle. Historically, Seattle's like biggest gay neighborhood, but now, you know, very gentrified. After a night of some of the most intense police violence that I have witnessed here, except possibly that that Westlake protest, but I think it was probably worse in terms of tear gas, in terms of, you know, munitions shot at protesters, in terms of just, you know, physical violence and manhandling of people. The cops then basically abandoned the building the next day and sent out a number of messages to business owners in the area. And I think even posted a public tweet saying, like, we have credible reason to believe that fires are going to be set tonight secure your property and they they were trying to kind of seed a, a Minneapolis situation i think probably to deflect blame for the abject acts of aggression that were on display the night before so because of that people were very on edge about not losing the sympathy of the general public and losing the narrative because we really had it. The mayor was under significant pressure, especially because of all the tear gas in the rich neighborhood, et cetera. So that first night when the police retreated and the protesters were allowed to basically do whatever they wanted with the building, people were very adamant about not letting anyone go inside. They wanted to just give it a moment to, you know, have cooler heads prevail and say, like, let's figure out what we actually want to do with this before we just loot it and burn it to the ground. 
possibly injure a bunch of people that we don't really want to injure and unleash those forces upon our movement. That mentality seems to have sort of maintained itself, especially in the, the first probably two to three days where it stopped being like, we need to stop a bunch of rightfully very angry people from burning this building down to it is an act of violence to go inside. As far as I know, no protesters ever even entered that building. And it was guarded by you Oof. know, activists and people with guns for most of the time that I was there. And so there would sometimes be conversations in theory about like, we should maybe go in the building. But the few times I know that anyone managed to rustle up any size of posse to like actually, you know, even go inside and see what it was, those people were kind of shouted down and or physically barred from entering. So once I saw that happening, I was kind of like, I mean, this is cool. And there are a bunch of ways that this project is really neat and and remarkable, but we're not going to be you know, holding down a police station. Um, You know, if we're just staying outside in the city streets, like this definitely has a shelf life. Was there like a stated rationale? This Uh, is just like the Iraq war, like shifting justifications. Honestly, it might be the main reasons that I personally heard were black people rightfully being very afraid of reprisal from the state, not, not wanting to, to take that on. Um, And then also, this was kind of the peak of the white anarchist outside agitator scaremongering narrative. And people were extremely wary of that as well. And I think at that point, some of the more trusted and nimble organizers were getting pretty burnt out. And people with less roots in the community or in the activist scene started becoming some of the louder voices on the ground. And those people, uh, from what I saw, were all people that didn't really want to go the route of like trying to go in the building or, you know, create a more prolonged occupation there besides, you know, whatever we could manage just doing it in the the streets. Uh, This is a paranoid thought. Yeah. Was was there ever a thought that there was some kind of maybe undercover something happening to prevent people from yeah. going inside because sure. that's a very I, vulnerable position to be uh-huh. in, to just be out on some blocks rather than agree. occupying a police station and maybe smoking their records or something. Yeah, absolutely. There absolutely were conversations about that and specific activists that I have my own suspicions about. Um, and a, a lot of, People on Twitter also have their very public suspicions about a lot of the people that I'm intimating towards were ones willing to work with the mayor or at least willing to have conversations with the mayor that didn't end in the mayor looking badly. And there were a lot of speculation about, like, who are you actually working with here? Um, I would not be at all surprised if there was some element of that for sure. The short answer is I don't I don't know concretely. Of course. Uh, okay. Right, also, right, right. No, th- recently it was revealed that I think one of the main organizers of the no cop co-op was sort of freelancing for the cops and feeding them information, which is uh, kind of funny. Although I don't want that to uh, reflect poorly on anyone else that worked on that project because I don't think they knew about that. That was kind of a one person deal. But yeah, so that, like there were definitely elements of that throughout the entire time. Well, it sounds like that's the baseline split, and you see that expressed in the name, right? Yep. Is this autonomous zone, or is this an occupied protest? How far do we take this? And, you know, I guess the best case you can make against the autonomous zone is, do we have the resources, the labor power to actually do that and sustain it? So I can understand, like, not wanting to escalate past a certain point, 
however, if the cops have literally left the area and just let you kind of run wild, I mean, yeah, maybe it's bait. Maybe they wanted people to burn down the police station to terrify white America. And mm-hmm. but then again, the last time they burned a police station in Minneapolis, it pulled better than the president. It's so. True. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I'm amazed how quickly the conversation went from, you know, the radical option being like, let's torch this sucker to, hey, can we like go in the building? Well, it's also a different location, though. It's a different circumstance. You know, this is in Seattle. No, no, no. Uh, But like in Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. I mean, that first night and especially, you know, before talking to people thinking about like, what's the next step if we get them to back down? Like, definitely there were people talking about, especially, you know, directly inspired by what was at that time, very recent events in Minneapolis being like, we could do that here. Yeah, you're right. That the (laughs) the ideas of of what was possible uh, shifted very drastically. On the Swampside episode with uh, Ben Lane. I intimated that the idea of Chaz, you know, the concept of the autonomous zone, while it gave me flashbacks to the Oakland commune in 2012 or what have you, there was something that like asked a question of power, something like a tactical conversation about an alternative to letting the police run things. Obviously, that didn't really pan out on the ground. And what we're talking about here is kind of why that didn't pan out on the ground. How much of that stuff is overstated, like armchair theory brain, and how much of it has like a grounding in what was actually possible? So I did listen to that episode. Can you rephrase the question or say it again? So the thing about the the concept of the autonomous zone, right, is mm-hmm. it's, it's an anarchist tactical alternative to the police. And it's hard to sustain long term. Uh, it doesn't really plug into like a lot of strategic long term mm-hmm. revolutionary horizons or whatever. But at the very least, it's like knocking at the door of an alternative. Yeah. I guess in that episode, I was kind of, you know, excited about this prospect. And despite the fact that I had seen something like it before fizzle out, mm-hmm. I was like, hey, you know, there's something. And I think this is why it made national news. I think this is why it pissed off the president. The very pretense that there is something like an alternative to bourgeois order. Is that extrapolating too much? No, I don't think think so. Um, I think a lot of people viewed it that way, or at least, you know, took inspiration from it as an idea. Generally speaking, what was actually going on on the ground there was not a, you know, direct threat to the bourgeois order, except for maybe, you know, any given day businesses were disrupted or whatever. But I, I mean, that wasn't a goal. People were actually trying to be very kind to the, the the people that lived there and the people with businesses there because um, there wasn't really a reason not to be. Kind of, yeah, as an idea and as a thing that you could go to and look at and say like, wow, we did this. There aren't any cops here. People are handing out food for free. Like any of your basic needs outside of like very specific prescriptions or something like we're met there. Like Seattle's homeless population started coming there to to see the street medics because they would get what they needed for free. And so like in that regard, it was a, if not a threat to the bourgeois order, at least a, a sort of an example that shook people out of complacency. And maybe one thing you can extrapolate too here is that security wise, like people really felt it was safe early on when there was a lot of energy yeah. and there were a lot of people there and it was really like a thriving space. Definitely. And, you know, that kind of plugs into the traditional communist demand, which is abolition of the police and standing armies mm-hmm. and replacing it with a popular militia. Right. You have something where the masses, everybody is involved in the kind of like martial defense of the revolutionary society. Definitely. 
if you have a society and if you have a mass, that's much easier to do because you have a functioning social body. Those are the, the kind of circumstances that, you know, you could really meaningfully achieve abolition of police, you know, even maybe without, you know, abolishing capitalism or implementing socialism or whatever. So that's why I think, you know, you start to see more and more violence and stuff like that kind of as it sort of peters out and sort of prolonged. Although I understand that place did have issues with that over time uh, beyond the existence of Chaz. But it also seemed like there were kind of like some sketchy things that happened that could have really been put against the protesters, specifically in the left in general, in a way that's mm. really bad if we didn't have like a lightning fast news cycle and everybody hadn't already forgotten about it. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes that redounds to our benefit. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And I think an aspect of the safety issues, which you're pretty right about personally, I, I kind of agree with you. That got covered here in Seattle quite a bit, but was definitely left out of the national discourse, was that before any of the shootings, except for the shooting that took place at the protest before Chaz actually existed, where the guy <laughs> ran to the police and was welcomed with open arms. Before any of these shootings happened, some of the more liberal organizers and activists that the mayor was willing to talk to negotiated away a good chunk of the territory back to the city and allowed the city to move where the barricades were, essentially. And it allowed a lot more car traffic into the area than had previously been possible. And a lot of people tie both the shootings specifically as having been facilitated by that shift in the border and then also just a much tenser, constant feeling of unease there because people could drive pretty far into the protest in a way that they weren't able to before. And so that really shifted the vibe there, honestly. The fact that we didn't really have control of the borders of it and the borders that we are now trying to enforce and keep people safe, like we're tactically not good choke points in a way that the early borders were. And so some of the safety stuff can be laid at the feet of that and the decision to allow the mayor to put those barricades in the way that they did that makes sense but in terms of security and whatnot i agree that when there were many more people there and there was much more enthusiasm about everything it definitely felt safer to me uh a white male person uh i should say than it did you know two weeks in or whatever right when there were only you know a few hundred people there instead of thousands i mean one thing i will say you know in favor of the liberals is that, you know, at least some of them were thinking about, like, some kind of exit strategy for this thing. Something yeah. that I th think kind of happens on the far left sometimes that's a problem is that they don't want to accept that there's going to be an inevitable return to normalization. Right. You know, strikes don't go on forever. Riots don't go on forever. How do we land this thing in a way that leaves us better off than when we started? And at the very least, I mean, going through that uh, slate of reforms that Ezra read off in the letter that was sent to us, it does indicate that, the protests in general, maybe this as well, did force, you know, some degree of concessions from the city in a concrete and measurable way. Definitely. The way that that CHOP was disbanded, I don't know that a lot was really mm. extracted from the city government. But peripheral protests and, and the things that the activists that use CHOP as a staging point, especially early on, were able to accomplish are extremely remarkable, especially for Seattle politics. And and I, I'm not going to say that Chaz Chop didn't play a, a role in that. I'm sure that it did. But I mean, like Bo mentioned, you know, we started marching on the mayor's house. She lives in a mansion in a very wealthy neighborhood in Seattle. Um, her neighbors were not happy about that. 
there was a prolonged slog to get the police union expelled from that labor council. That, I think, had been going on for months and kind of came to a head at this point. Things like that, where it's like, these goals have have all come about at, at the same time that Chaz did, but I don't think Chaz was specifically the reason that they all were achieved. But definitely, I'm sure it helped. You can't really demonstrate any concrete causality yeah. on that one way or another. I'm just kind of lumping right. it in. No, it... You're, you're right. But I also will say a lot of those concessions, I think, were the work of progressive and more radical organizing groups uh, okay. than the people that ended up being the faces of the latter part of CHOP. Yeah, I guess the reason why radical options don't go anywhere is things that pose the question of power when there's no permanent organization of the proletariat. Either you go like straight to, you know, full rapture communization, or it's got to go bust. There's really no other option. It's hard to know how to draw something down in a way that isn't clearly just a defeat. Like there's something to be said about a tactical retreat. If you've declared an autonomous zone or something, or even an occupation, that's something that always got me in the Occupy days. Like what else do we have here but attrition? They could have called it uh, a temporary autonomous zone. I mean, I guess there are different like groups that are seemingly able to extract concessions and develop things from this in Seattle. The analogy I was going to use is like a strike. You go on strike, okay. understand sooner or later you're going to have to go back to work. And you just want to go back to work with a little more than you had when you stopped going to work. The dynamics of this are different because it's not you're not dealing with a specific firm, a specific union. You're dealing with this kind of more amorphous thing. But there does have to be a site to, look, we're going to take these blocks, then we'll take over six more blocks, and pretty soon we'll own the whole city, and then, you know, it'll be Bane. <laughs> that, 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 was, that was never in the cards. You have to go, okay, let's keep an eye towards, we put this thing up in the air, how are we going to bring us in for a landing? I guess I've never seen that happen. Basically, I've, ne- I've never seen these things go into tactical retreat the way that a strike does when it, right. like, Well, because there's no organization. Yeah, I was going to say, it requires right. organization. <laughs> The fact that this is the real movement, basically, like these pop-up kind of things, is a symptom of organization being much more like of an amorphous, if not impossible, prospect right now. I don't think it's impossible, but plenty of people do. (laughs) I mean, it's hard because there aren't enough people, and maybe like the moral economy, you could say, in the United States has been subsumed enough to capitalism you're cutting against the grain in terms of organizing um, Mm -hmm. workplaces and so forth. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the sort of geography of like life in the United States and how it's pretty much designed on like an anti-communist and anti-unionist basis. So you have to kind of cut through that stuff. But in this kind of secular trend, especially amongst young people who are not vested in the system, there's going to be, I think, a secular trend more and more towards anti-capitalism because they don't have any skin in the game and they're just getting fucked by it. So why would you subscribe to those values? And as that happens, hopefully, it'll maybe you know fertilize the soil a little bit for workplace organizing, for organizing in places that are a part of like your direct life and lived experience, right? You're not driving to a summit protest. You're not driving to the happening in downtown seattle you know (laughs) it's something that is happening you know in your immediate sphere and for there to be enough places for that to work this stuff needs to be more popular and these kind of socialist views need to be more widespread right but let's tie this back to that tactical conversation over whether to have you know chaz on the block or like occupy the police station if the police station was occupied right 
mm-hmm. and there was some kind of potential of actually sort of defending your perimeter for a longer term. There would still be internal problems. There would still be violence. There would still be potential attrition. But you also have the ability to do something like set up an autonomous community center or something that could have a life outside of the time period, which is what I think, you know, optimistically we talked about with Ben Lane being like the best case scenario. I guess if you're a radical in these things, like you're looking for that green shoot possibility. How do we sustain the gains of the revolution, you know, without permanent organizations? How do we make something relatively permanent out of this temporary upsurge? Right. Something like that could be some kind of community center or, yeah. See, what was floated by proponents of maybe occupying the police station? Aspirationally, it it was that. It was to take that building back and turn it into something that could be a resource for the community in a way that a police station is not you know whether it would be a revolutionary bookstore or something is probably (laughs) probably not but you know pretty much anything is better than a police station in the middle of your neighborhood so that was the goal that i heard most people brainstorm about community meeting place place where you could learn about resources in the area you know clinics could be held whatever i think that was the sort of thing that a lot of people were hoping it would turn into well what's good about this being over with is now we all have the energy to go and fight the real war um the, the fight against cancel culture oh and, yeah uh, rehabilitating jk rowling uh yeah. to defend <laughs> to defend liberal millennials uh secular religion harry potter we're gonna protect gryffindor from from dumble snake and we're gonna yeah from those tranny uh, Slytherins, you know. What if it was that blatant? That's what like it was all about. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it was. These Slytherins think that there's some kind of delusion yeah. borderless being. They wear yeah. women's dresses and seduce young boys. It's it's very dangerous, you know. And yeah. It's like how do we, how do we not notice that when? It's, yeah, you know. actually, it was there all along. You just have to read between the lines. What are, what are the goblins? I mean, come on. Yeah. But, anyway. Well, now that chop is over. At least, you know, based on what Bo said, and also really what you're saying, C, is that like, yeah, it's cool that we pissed off the president and that like this got national attention. But what this was most useful for is as a springboard for other things. And even though the national attention has kind of left Seattle, there's actually still quite a bit going on. And a lot of it was peripheral to this, like, you know, what sort of degenerated Definitely. Like we got the city council to commit to defunding the police by 50 percent. I'm not 100 percent sure what work is still to be done, um, but they have a veto proof majority and they're working with an activist coalition that I trust to try to get some actual concessions here. We've got Kshama Swant. um, uh, Yeah. Another. Council member uh, Teresa Muscada has also been pretty critical in that. Huh. Right? Um, and so we've got that. We're trying to recall the mayor. Um, we need to collect 56,000 signatures in a pandemic. But uh, right. I think we're up to the task. The police union is demoralized and in a worse position than it's probably been in decades, which is sick. Um, yeah, They're crying right into their McDonald's and their Dodge Chargers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Right. Can't wait for the TikToks. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there are a lot of positive or inspiring things still going on, and hopefully, will be sustained in the coming days and weeks and months and years. Uh, so, 
I can't resist asking about Kashama Sawant with regards to there being like a real movement on the ground and you have like Trot City Council member or something, mm-hmm. right? And the way that that interacted. I actually don't know anything else about <laughs> Seattle, like city council politics um, and having been a veteran of, of autonomous protests in the Pacific Northwest, I know that relationship can be ambivalent, you know, to be sweet about it. How do you feel like this, you know, Trotskyist city council member kind of behaved in the face of autonomous protest? Is it unlike the French neo-Trotskyists in the 2024 student riots in Star Trek or like what, (laughs) what is it? I'm unfortunately not familiar with the reference, but, uh, I need oh, it. Got to listen to our two-parter with the Antifada where we watched yeah. Past Tense from Deep Space Nine. I specifically didn't because I, I still need to savor Deep Space Nine. And so oh. I was like, oh. Yeah, that's a good Respect. idea. That's one of the ones Watch I have. Yeah. That's going up to the top of the list. For one thing, I think she's a lot better of a representative than the vast, vast majority of city council members I've ever experienced just off the bat. Obviously, there are critiques of her and her strategies and her priorities that people have made. I haven't like honestly been around organizing in Seattle long enough to say that I have any specific beef with her or with Socialist Alternative or anything. They've always been nice. They're definitely willing to lend support to all sorts of causes in the city, both, you know, material support and also amplifying things with her gigantic platform. And I know that that is a really useful thing that she's able to provide the city. So like, yeah, it's a mixed bag. I don't know. Did, didn't she let a bunch yeah. of people into city hall? She did do that. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the things that really annoyed the mayor. The mayor released a very angry letter calling for the city council to impeach or whatever Sawant. And one of her main gripes was that Sawant, you know, led a march into city council and unlocked it with her official key or whatever that's cool. i like to know that the key to the city actually opens something. <laughs> yeah yeah it's nice it's to know cool. that uh-huh. yeah it opens city hall uh i don't know why um, i never made that connection before but i mean uh, i don't know if you I, have a socialist like in an electoral body you know mm-hmm. what are they gonna do when shit pops off you want to yeah. see some kind of synergy there she's a very divisive force in seattle like she barely won her last election by like a few hundred votes i think so like there are a lot of people, especially, you know, her constituency that don't want her around what they're doing. And I think she's very cognizant of that. It's a fine line to walk where it's like, you know, am I helping this or am I co-opting it uh, or do I care? And I think depending on the situation and depending on the day and what the thing is, uh, the answer to that could be any of the three. Working uh, with I'm- Kashama it comes with baggage, if for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I guess I'm less Kashama Sawant skeptical. I mean, because I remember when she was like first elected and like Salt yeah. was just fucking doing donuts and like, yeah, you know, we fucking did it. What did you do? We did it. Uh-huh. And over time, it's like, honestly, I've been pleasantly, I don't know, it kind of rules like having someone around, especially when like, I guess like Amazon or whatever, like spent like millions yeah. of dollars to try and get rid of her. Gosh, that just, like, was wild. Yeah, just yeah. completely like pissed that money down the toilet. I know she also behind the scenes basically got Bernie to admit. You know, he was basically scared of ending up like Nader, and that's why he wouldn't run third party. Just like shit like that over the years has been tremendously gratifying for yeah, me to watch. No, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. She does a lot of stuff like that, especially like local politics, where I think she's pretty effective at, at what she's trying to do. 
Well, there's only so much you can do when you're like exactly, one person yeah. in like a fucking For city sure. council, you know? <sighs> yeah. Like it's like in some ways, like Salt's whole thing, like, okay, let's just mobilize all of our forces to get this one person on city council. That's kind of pathetic. But at the same time, that's also a very like irrational way to approach using an organization. Like if that's all you can do, like, yeah, leverage everything you can get for like the maximum return, you know? Yeah. The progress that's been made toward taxing these gigantic software corporations in our city and you know, um, progress towards housing initiatives and like progress towards the $15 minimum wage that we have. Like, again, these aren't all things that like Sawant did, but she definitely right. played like a major role in all of those fights, um, as did other people. Yeah, I don't think that can be discounted. The question is, is that maximum return? My major critique when it comes to municipal electoralism is that it's sort of small potatoes and that is that the maximum return that you can get? by focusing on the city. You know, if you do the political balance of forces throughout the United States, socialists are in the cities, but is that the best place to concentrate your efforts? Or is it maybe more trouble than it's worth most of the time? Like SALT as an organization, Socialist Alternative, I don't know what else they do. I think that might be all they do. Yeah, I can't speak to that. I don't know. I haven't seen SALT people for like years, but they, I think SALT right. collapsed here. Okay. Uh, Mostly due to, like, interpersonal drama. Isn't that how it always goes? Yeah, yes, yes, it is. This is a useful example of what having, like, a municipal, you know, socialist representative, one, one isolated one that maybe has some sympathetic compatriots on the council, maybe doesn't. Is there anyone, see, that, like, is even remotely sympathetic to her on the council? Sounds like there must be. There are, there are definitely, like, there's, she's, I think, staked out the position of being the most radical, but sure. kind of issue by issue. She's not bad at coalition building behind the scenes, I think. Her brand is such that even if you agree with her and you're maybe a local politician, you might not want to attach your name to it or whatever. But Right, right. Um, but yeah, uh, she definitely has a few mm -hmm. um, that work with her or co-sponsor things together with her a lot. Are there any efforts on the ground in Seattle that you think deserve more attention than they're getting right now? Charlene Elias was killed by the police here in Washington. I don't think it was Seattle. I think it was a different city, but her name has been at the kind of the forefront of our protests. Charlene Elias' family has a few demands. So I would, I would say look that up and see if there's a way you can help her family seek justice in the ways that they are hoping to. Making sure that the police defunding actually goes through and doesn't get defanged along the way is going to be really important. Africa Town initiative. Cool. That's happening in Capitol Hill. That is a part of this city that historically was a black neighborhood and is now being kind of rapidly gentrified. There are organizers that are trying to find ways to combat that gentrification and make sure that the residents of that neighborhood retain equity stakes and things and they are able to, you know, have their their businesses and things like that. It's it's a complicated hodgepodge of things, some of which are definitely capitalist endeavors. But yeah, that's worth looking into at least, I think. Okay. Um, All good things must come to an end. Indeed. Uh, be it Chaz or Star Trek the Next Generation. Star Trek the Next Generation. Although I guess they kind of brought it back, didn't they? C, thanks C. for thanks for sitting in. Yeah, yeah thanks so much for coming. Uh, you were a bit hesitant because you were just some guy, but here at Swampside Chats, we are puffing in our armchairs, and just some guy is enough credential to be here. So thank you for coming. Yeah. Absolutely, thank you for uh, having me on and making this show. <laughs> <laughs>